uh, I was uh, practicing law in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. I got a call uh, from uh, a guy named George Hable, who was the uh, he was the president of the Capital Sports Network, and he asked me about doing radio games. And like you said, Kyle, there's no money in it. Um, it was going to be a distraction from my real job, which was of real substance. And um, but I thought, you know what, this could be fun. And, and I did think that it could lead to something, but I wasn't sure. Uh, but I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try it. And if I don't like it, I can quit. Uh, but, but why would I quit before I tried it out to see if it was worthwhile and, and for me? Welcome back to the Underdog Podcast with your host, Kyle Decker, and myself, Calvin Blackman. Before we get to tonight's episode, do us a favor and check out our new website, www.theunderdogpodcast.com and be sure to sign up for our weekly underdog newsletter. Now, on to this week's episode. He started broadcasting, making only about $200 a game. Today, he's one of the most decorated analysts for college hoops, as you can find him on ESPN. And the simple fact that he starts each and every morning with a Twitter quote from Young Jeezy, it's my guy, Jay Billis. I got to go to work. First off, uh, appreciate you. Thanks, Jay, for taking some time joining myself and my partner, Kyle, here on the uh, on the Underdog Podcast. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Not a problem. Um, so before we get going, I, I, I know you are, uh, I know you've gotten this question before as a, uh, avid hip hop fan. Um, you know, I, I, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, um, this morning you either on parole or on probation, the DA going to send you on a long vacation. <laughs> Gotta go to work. I was, uh, I was turned on to this by a buddy of mine named Josh a few months back and we were at a, at a bachelor party. And uh, he's like, you know, Jay Billis is always quoting Young Jeezy. And I was like, shut up. And I pulled it up and I was like, it's my guy. That is my guy. So as a fan of yours and obviously of, of Young Jeezy, where does that stem from? <laughs> Just stems from, uh, you know, I, I mean, I love music and I've always loved it. Uh, Hip hop and, and rap music is not the only thing I listen to, but uh, I started listening to to rap when I was in high school, back in the late 70s, I'd say. Um, I first heard the Sugar Hill Gang do Rapper's Delight, and I was kind of hooked. And uh, my teammates and I listened to it just about every day, and uh, we knew all this. I could, still, I could still go word for word for that one. But, yeah. uh, you know, through college, listened to it, and then uh, about, I don't know what year it was, probably 2010, I'd say. Um, we were at college game day at Michigan State, and uh, uh, Draymond Green had some headphones on and we were, you know, we asked him, somebody on our crew asked him, what do you listen to? And he said, Young Jeezy. And so uh, Hubert Davis on our crew asked me, you know, is that on your, your, at the time, I think he said iPod. This is how long it was ago it was. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and I said, well, yeah, actually it is. And somehow when we, when we talked about that on the air, um, there were some people who didn't believe me. So on Twitter, uh, I was going back and forth with some different different people in the mentions thing, and and uh, so they they'd say, "Oh, come on, man, you don't listen to Jeezy," and I I put a lyric out or something, and uh, and after doing that for a little while, um, you know, it was fun and everything, but I I if I remember right, I really did have to go to work. I had to stop doing that so I could go into the <laughs> office. 
and I put that in one of those things after a lyric and it just kind of caught on and, and it's been so kind of an everyday thing since then. A little weird, but fun. I love it. I retweet them. Yeah, I love it. He <laughs> told me about it. I said it was great. I do have to say something I learned, I think it was this week, you are talking about Shaka Smart. How does this man right here apply for your bald club? How does that, how does that work? <laughs> Automatically in it. You, you're, a, oh. you're a member. Yeah, there's oh, no dues. Uh, the meetings are short but fun. Uh, we get to drinks right away. We just, we... Very, you know, we we go over our financials real quick, and the uh, the organization's <laughs> great financial health, and then we go right to cocktails. So it's uh, yeah, I, but Shaka's no, no longer, yeah, Shaka's no longer welcome as long as he's got uh, whatever that is on top of his head. Um, I'm sure, I'm sure he's enjoying it, but you you know, once you're once you're a member of the Bald Brotherhood, you just can't, you just don't you know, go back. Whether it's implants or a wig or natural, just not interested. <laughs> yeah, when, when you when you posted that or tweeted that, I was like, oh my god, I didn't even recognize Shaka Smart. And then I uh, saw Frank Martin, and he, you know what? I think the bald look is better. I'm gonna say Shaka Smart is better looking bald than, yeah, than no not. Doubt. But anyway, uh, really appreciate it. We don't have to worry it. about bedhead, you know. We don't, and and I haven't owned a comb uh, since I think it was since 2008. So it's great. <laughs> nice. Nice. That's fantastic. Well, we both, uh, we both had the honor of reading your book, uh, this week, by the way, it's fantastic. I know that was back in like 2013 toughness. And there was a lot of things I think we took about that and we kind of were learning about your story and something that stuck out to us was, you know, how it's a little bit like with us with this podcast was, you know, really just starting it from scratch. And just because we're passionate about trying to share positive stories, obviously with you in broadcasting basketball, come from Duke and, the background you had, but you were broadcasting for games for like a hundred, 200 bucks. Right. And just passionate and, in overcoming in our journey, we, we believe an underdog is someone who's overcame adversity to have success. And you've done that obviously at the broadcasting, in my opinion, you're the best that's out there, especially at the college game. Uh, can you talk about that journey and how you got into it for those that don't know? Yeah, I, I was practicing law. You know, I, I had thought when I was in college um, and some, you know, maybe even in high school when, for, you know, there were some former athletes that were getting into broadcasting at that time. And that was a new thing uh, when I was in high school. You know, it, it was actually a, a, a controversial thing a little bit. And there was discussion about, you know, should former athletes be in the broadcast booth, stuff like that. So I thought, you know, that might be something that'd be fun to do, you know, when I'm done playing. I wasn't thinking when I was younger about, hey, what, what's the most substantive thing I could do or what's the, what's the hard road? I was thinking about what would be most fun. And uh, so I had that in the back of my mind. I worked uh, a little bit in the industry when I was in college uh, as a runner for ABC Sports. Um, but when I got, when my wife and I got married and, and I had gone to law school, I thought, you know what, the responsible, right thing to do is, um, you know, you were about to start a family is get a real, you know, get a real job as a practicing lawyer. So I did, uh, I was uh, practicing law in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina. I got a call, uh, from, uh, a guy named George Habel, who was the, uh, he was the president of the capital sports network. And he asked me about doing radio games. And like you said, Kyle, there's no money in it. Um, it was going to be a distraction from my real job, which was of real substance. And, um, but I thought, you know what, this could be fun. And, and I did think that it could lead to something, but I wasn't sure. Uh, but I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to try it. And if I don't like it, I can quit. Uh, but, but why would I quit before I tried it out to see if it was worthwhile and, and for me? So it, it was pretty challenging the first two years, I'd say, um, and challenging from the standpoint of, of time. 
because I wanted to be fully prepared for the broadcast opportunities that I had and to enjoy that and make sure I did a good job. But uh, I also had to do my law job the right way. Um, so having two jobs like that was a little bit taxing, but it was worthwhile. And after a few years uh, of doing both, uh, you know, I started getting TV games and all that. And then it became too difficult to, to do both jobs and do them well. So I, I chose the broadcast route. And I'm still with my law firm, but I don't I don't practice law like I used to. I, I'm I'm more of a uh, you know recruiting and and a little bit of business development. I don't I don't hoof it as a lawyer, even though I'm licensed to practice. I don't hoof it like I used to. Now, in your book, you talk about you you give a lot of credit as, as you should to your to your mother and father um, of the hard work that they did. But at the time when you were young, you didn't realize that the hard work and the toughness was what it was. You know until you know, obviously sports opened your eyes to how, you know, sports and life correlate. And one thing that stood out to me is the word concentration. And you talk a lot about concentration because there's so many distractions and you just touched on trying to practice law, starting a family, trying to do broadcasting. And one thing your father always said, you know, just concentrate on what's in front of you and you will be able to do a good job, a good enough job and be able to become, you know, quote unquote, an expert at that field or whatever. So can you talk about, you know, maybe what you were able to learn from your from your parents for those who haven't read your book and then what concentration really has done for you and being able to excel and, and become the best in, in your profession? Yeah, well, thank you for saying that, but but I don't know if that's true, but thank you. Um, <laughs> my my dad, my dad was one that I don't think really believed in multitasking. Um, he he certainly believed in accomplishing an, a, a lot of things in a day, but he he didn't do two things at once. Uh, he he put his mind to something, he got he got it done, and then he moved on to the next thing and left that in the rearview mirror. And for me, when I was a kid, I, I didn't realize that, you know, the things that were important to me, concentration was easy. You know, when I was playing ball or doing something, I mean, I, I might get distracted if I was, um, maybe I had something on my mind or I, I, I had a big test or, you know, school wasn't going particularly well and I might've dragged that into something else. Uh, that, that happened uh, uh, from time to time. And, and my dad counseled me on that pretty well. But, but it, was, it was pretty interesting to me when I was younger that if it was a priority of mine, concentrating wasn't that hard. If, it, if I didn't deem it a priority, then, it, then uh, uh, putting my attention to it and really grinding it out and getting the most out of, the, of what I was doing was, was the a problem. And so I, I just sort of realized after you know, my dad helped me out with it and, and you had trial and error and you know, things that went wrong, you learned lessons from it, um, that if I, if I expected to uh, do things, you know, get anything done and done right, um, I had to, I had to be in the moment and I had to handle what was, what was right in front of me. So if I'm in class, doesn't matter whether I'm a little bored with this or it's not my favorite subject or whatever, I'm here and there's nothing else, uh, that, that I can do right now. So I better get something out of this. And it was, uh, I learned a lot that way. Um, and I learned, you know, con like concentration is kind of like your, your wind It's like running. The more you concentrate, the more you're capable of concentrating the next time. It's a, it's a muscle and a skill, just like anything else in my view. Um, but my dad was big on that. Like he, uh, uh, he got on me one time. I had fallen off a ladder when I was working with him. And, and his, he said something at the time that was pretty profound that I don't think he realized. He was just pissed off. 
uh, at me, but he had said, he had said, you can't get to the top of that ladder in one step, but you can get to the bottom in one step. So concentrate on what you're doing. And it was sort of the idea of which rung on that ladder is most important. You know, you're, you you're thinking, you can think about the top of the ladder all you want to, but if you don't handle the rung you're on, you're never going to get to the top. It doesn't matter. And uh, so I've used that sort of lesson uh, a lot in the things I've done. And, and, and that, that's sort of the, one of the things where, you know, my dad, in a lot of ways, you know, people could say, well, he, you know, he's a, he's a simple guy. Um, and I mean that in a positive way, but, but uh, he also was, was really profound in, in the things that he believed in. When did you realize in broadcasting that this is something I can do for the long, because I, I would imagine when you first took it on, you know, to the first time you do a game, you're probably like, if there's anything, there's nerves. When did you realize I could turn this into a legitimate career and, and actually be good at this? Well, th those are two different questions. So that, that's really, <laughs> but, but, but no, seriously, those, those, those are really good questions, but I think they're two different ones. So when did I know I could do this? I always knew I could do it. Um, but, but when did I realize I could do it and other people might recognize it and actually give me money and I could have a career at it. Um, that was, that was way later. Um, I knew in high school I could do it. Uh, I had, I had, I, I kind of was trained for this in a lot of ways. And, and I give my mom a lot of credit for that because, you know, my mother did not want me to be an uncultured person. So she made sure that I did stuff that I had no you know, desire to do at all. In fact, that I would turn away from. I, 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 she, she had me take, I took ballroom dancing and I, I actually competed as a ballroom dancer when I was a kid, which was brutal. I hated it. Uh, but it was really important to do something in front of people that you didn't like to do that. Um, and I wasn't self-conscious about it. I, I, I tried to excel at it. I didn't tell any of my friends I was doing it. Um, <laughs> Were you any good? Real quick, quick question. I was good. Yeah, I, yeah. Name? My partner and I, we won a lot of, we won a lot of different events. I, but though, I never displayed the trophies. I always kept them in a closet somewhere because I didn't want my friends to see them. <laughs> that, that was one of my favorite things. Like when I was, when, when you're in, uh, it was probably late in junior high school. It was probably eighth grade. You had to take these things called cotillion in school. Yep. Um, back then. And so uh, when, when I did that, none of my friends knew that I was doing this ballroom dance thing. And so when I did the cotillion stuff, they were looking at me, a few of my friends were looking at me going, God, you're good at that. Like, how do you, how do you, and I said, they just told us how to do it. Like, I'm an athlete. How could you not do that? Like, you know, they were falling all over themselves and I had been trained in it. So I knew how to do it. So I, 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 I acted like I was just picking it up like nothing. So that was the only fun I ever had with that. But I also was, you know, my, my mom had me in kind of speech and debate courses and which led to, I, I got to know a teacher and he, he put me into these forensics competitions and all these things where you had to, uh, it was public speaking competitions. So I felt comfortable in those, or at least more comfortable than I would have otherwise. So a little red light on top of a camera didn't scare me. Um, but the combination of, you know, the preparation I learned in law school uh, all the different things that I had done growing up uh, that my mom had made me do, uh, I think kind of set up uh, the ability, at least the ability to do the job. So I'm, I, I've always been comfortable. I can do this job. Uh, but I, I was never sure that you're going to gain traction uh, with your employer or, or an audience or your colleagues or whatever, such that, that you would have a, 
a recognizable career and be able to rely on it to where you'd say, okay, well, I, I can actually pay some rent and feed a family with this. Yeah, that's a big, big piece. We were talking about, obviously, you know, we walked, you know, saw your family. I know your, your wife, Wendy, I believe is an artist. Good one as is. So shout out to her and, and her, her work. Um, but, uh, one thing I had, I guess, kind of a selfish question for me, we're sitting here in our studio, we do broadcasting on the side, like I said, for that free or, or 50 bucks over here, but I know how important it is for, uh, you know, in a broadcasting booth to have trust with your partner, or at least an understanding and belief of where that's going. And listening to you last night and what I've done and watching your body of work, how much preparation, because that's a lot in your book, as you had mentioned, preparation. I know you learned that at law school. Can you, for anyone that's aspiring to uh, get into broadcasting of any sort, any sport, I do football. Um, but how do you uh, approach that with a partner and have that synergy and, and that flow and, and any recommendations from that standpoint? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I've been lucky with the partners I've had that uh, uh, everybody's been selfless. I think the first thing you have to do is be selfless and realize the broadcast isn't about you. It's about the audience and doing right by the game. And everybody has a role. So uh, I've, I've always tried to stay in my lane and make sure that the whoever I'm working with on a play-by-play -play side or uh, whoever is working as a, as a reporter, uh, everybody's got their lane. So if I, if I have information that can help a reporter that I'm working with, I, I provide that to the reporter or I say, Hey, listen, you know, this is something I've got. Why don't you take it? Or why don't you look into this? Uh, you know, something like that. And then, uh, and then I try desperately to steer clear of areas where I would get in the way of, of the play-by-play -play job. And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, late in the game, when there's a, a last second shot, nobody wants to hear analysis of the last second shot. What they want to hear is the play-by-play -play person take them through what's happening. So if you ever watch SportsCenter and you hear an analyst talking uh, over the last shot or just after the last shot is made, I think that's a mistake. I think that's the, that's the area of the play-by-play -play person. Now, maybe reasonable minds can differ. I've never really had this discussion with anyone, but but I, I am usually pretty pissed off at myself. I haven't, I haven't heard it uh, in a long time. I did it, maybe I did it years and years ago. But if I hear my voice on SportsCenter on a last second shot, I'm not happy about it. That's not my area. And similarly, I don't think you should hear the play-by-play -play person or the reporter when there's a replay for the analyst. That's That's my job. And uh, uh, so, you know, it's that kind of that's how you build trust is by doing your job first and letting your letting your teammates do their jobs without you getting in the way. On the prep side, I actually, you know, last night had a, an example of why you prepare for everything rather than just what you've been assigned. Uh, we had technical difficulties last night. It was a double header. I was supposed to be the analyst on uh, Gonzaga, West Virginia, and Dick Vitale was supposed to be the analyst on Baylor, Illinois. Well, I prepared for both games. I, you know, I, I always do that when there's a, a doubleheader that I'm, I'm, I'm a part of. I'm prepared to do them both. And uh, we had technical difficulties. Dick couldn't do the second game, so I did it. And, and it, you know, it was a seamless thing uh, because I was prepared for it. Um, and that means a lot of work sometimes because, you know, it's a one in, I don't know, even know what the, what the likelihood of that would be, one in a, a thousand you know, I mean, I've done a thousand games. It's the only time I've had that happen. And I've had other times where I've been in the studio and somebody says, hey, the, the feed's down. 
uh, can you step in and do this game in a studio? And, you know, I have scouting reports for all these teams, um, especially all the ones that would be televised on our network. So it, usually I could, I could step in and do that. I can't say I could do it every single time without, you know, a little bit of prep work, but, um, but I prepare for those things. And, um, uh, and, you know, last night, like, you know, it's not, it, it, I'm not saying, you know, it's not getting any attention because no, you know, I'm, I'm thankful. Nobody, nobody noticed. And sure. I, I yeah. think that's actually a good thing. I was yeah. just going to ask our coach always said we played at college uh, football together and said, had have a plan, work the plan, plan for the unexpected. <laughs> and that's what you do on an often basis. And that came through big time. I would have never known I was sitting there watching, doing prep for this podcast uh, watching that Baylor game and actually a kid, uh, Masio Teagues from Cincinnati, where we're at from yeah. Walnut Hills high school here. And it's fun to watch him doing a good job for Baylor and miles McBride, the game before he's a, a Moeller grad here in Cincinnati. So yeah. there's a lot of Cincinnati high school stars playing last night. So yeah, it's uh, I would never have known, like I said, you, you obviously did your research and kind of, cause I, my next question was going to, uh, you know, with this being the underdog and when people face moments of adversity, my question for you was going to be, you know, when you do face those moments of adversity, you know, what is your, how do you typically handle those? But it sounds like, you know, obviously just always being prepared is probably the number one, um, you know, but for someone as yourself in a pub, as in the, in the, in the public light who gets to voice your opinion and you're going to have those who differ with your opinion. Um, when you get a backlash, when you get those moments of, you know, there's something out that Jay Billa said this and the world goes up in flames because of what you said, you know, how do you keep that that backbone of, you know what, this is what I said, I stand by it, I may be incorrect in portions of it, but this is what I believe, and I'm going to stand firm by that. You know, for someone who has to maybe speak in a company or may put something out there that, you know, they're, when they're nervous, you know, what is your, you know, process for making sure that, you know, you stand by what you believe and, and really being able to put, um, you know, the facts out there and not really letting the outside world interfere with what you uh with what you believe yeah that's a good question i mean first if i say something and if if it's a matter of importance not not something like well you know who's got you know which arena has the best ice cream or something like that <laughs> but if it, if it's something that's important if i say, if i give my 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 judgment on it i've thought about it and i i believe i'm right and so and i can back it up uh, so once i say it um, if someone has a differing judgment, then put it out there. That's fine. Uh, but I, if I get criticized for something, I don't have a problem with that. Um, and I've always said this, like, I don't, I don't argue with compliments. Why would I argue with criticism? That, that's, you know, that's fine. Uh, when I get criticized and that happens to all of us, uh, I have a very simple way of looking at it. Is the criticism right? And is it reasonable? If it's right, then I address it um, because maybe, you know, that I love to have my ideas stress tests to, because if there's criticism and I, I, I look at the criticism, I look at the opposing argument to mine, maybe it'll change my point of view. Uh, if it, but, but even if it doesn't, it, it strengthens my point of view. If, if I consider it and I can, in a reasoned way, say, nope, this is why that's incorrect. If it's unreasonable, I dismiss it right away. Like I don't, I, you can't reason with unreasonable. So if there's an unreasonable response to something, I don't even mess with it. Um, and I, if it's vitriolic, if it's so unreasonable as to be unhealthy, 
uh, I use, you know, whether it's social media, I'll block things that are, that I think are, are unhealthy. And if somebody, you know, if, if somebody came up and said something vile to me on the street, I turn around and walk the other way. So why the hell would I listen to it on social media? I just, I, I, I block it right away. And that's not to be mean or anything. It's just, why would I let, why would I let into my sphere something that's, that's vile and unreasonable? Um, but if it's reasonable and it's right, I deal with it. I got, I have no problem with it. Sure. Uh, I think it's great. And you're so open, you know, we're being former student athletes ourselves, you know, about, um, you know, the care and the passion for those student athletes. And obviously you're well known for, um, you know, trying to, uh, protect the players and student, former student athletes like yourself and ourselves for, you know, being able to have a, a right to hopefully eventually make uh, money, I guess would be the compensation or a fair and equitable situation. Can you kind of go, because there's a lot of people maybe that's not as familiar with that stance, but what you're you know trying to accomplish with, you know, some of the governance and the disagreement what you have with the NCAA on uh, fair and equitable stances for players? Yeah, it's basically, you know, I cover college sports. I've been a part of college sports since I was uh, 17 years old. Um, so I've been through the system. Uh, I, I've, I've been on NCAA committees. I've studied the policies and I have judgments on them. Uh, and that's part of my job is to cover that. So uh, one of the things that I find unacceptable is the NCAA's stance on amateurism. Uh, I don't believe those, uh, those rules, especially in a multi-billion dollar business are, are fair. And in fact, I think they violate federal antitrust law. That's, you know, the NCAA has been, been found in multiple courts to have violated federal antitrust law. I'm not breaking news there. Uh, but the way I look at it is what other person is told what they can earn or accept uh, in, in this business? And the answer is nobody. Uh, so the idea that, well, college athletes get a scholarship, they should just shut up. Well, a lot of students that are non-athletes get scholarships and nobody tells them what they can earn or accept in their chosen field. And I think it's ludicrous that you're an athlete is told what they can earn or accept if they want to maintain their ability to play while they're in college. And I, I find that ridiculous, especially when they're being sold for billions of dollars. Money and education are not mutually exclusive. And, they're, and, they're, and money and love for the game are not mutually exclusive. Uh, so I think that, I think the antiquated notion of, of amateurism is being not only chipped away, I think it's crumbled. And the fact that the NCAA is now moving toward name, image, and likeness rights, although restricted name, image, and likeness rights, indicates that they never really did believe in this amateurism thing, that, that it was just they could get away with it, so they did. And they can't get away with it anymore, so they're having to give up some of it. But, but they said from the beginning, if athletes are allowed any money, if they are allowed name, image, and likeness rights in any way, shape, or form, they are pros. That's what they've said. And now they're giving it to them. So they're admitting that they're pros. And once you've done that, you're, 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 you have no leg to stand on in the argument anymore. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you think that's going to look just real quick? Because us coming from like a mid-major school, how will that look in this, the landscape of you know, 300 plus division one schools, how, how's that going to be broadcasted between obviously the blue bloods and uh, the mid majors in your opinion? 
Same as it looks now, uh, there won't be any difference. Um, it's sort okay. of the idea about, about you know, how, how will it look that the, the major conferences have bigger television deals than the, the mid-major and smaller conferences. And you know, they make more money and all that stuff. They have more resources. Uh, it, it's exactly the same. But the difference is in some of these smaller markets that are quote, quote unquote mid-majors, they have major conference followings. And so there, there are, there can be more opportunities for athletes to make money in those markets than if you were in a, uh, if you're at a big school in a big city. Um, so w I think this is going to open up a ton of revenue streams, not only for athletes, but also for institutions. And, uh, and I think the NCAA is making a mistake by slow playing this and saying, well, the athletes can make money in this area, this area, and this area, but they can't use university marks. They can't have deals with university partners. And they can't have deals with that conflict with university partnerships. You're like, well, what does that leave? They can they can give tennis lessons. I mean, that that's that's kind of <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, so it it'll it'll slowly open up, and you know, the NCAA thinks that they're going to get and federal antitrust protection from Congress. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, they may get they may get preemption. They may get a, the Congress passing a law that preempts all these different state laws, but uh, but this train is now heading down the tracks. And and if the NCAA is uh, is smart, and thus far they haven't been very smart, but if they're smart, they'll uh, they'll they'll open this up and allow the players to uh, benefit with the same economic rights as any other student and any other person. Uh, and, and if they do that, then you know, magically all these lawsuits are gonna go away because it'll finally be fair. Yeah, we talked to Neil Brown at West Virginia's football coach and he was talking about this as well with us of, of um, they're already taking those steps with some marketing companies to really kind of build the player profiles within West Virginia football in the event, try to be ahead of this um, right. and, and kind of create that as a recruiting tool to build that, Hey, we have this type of following that you player, you do, you wouldn't think in Morgantown, but like you said, in state of West Virginia, <laughs> they're a big deal. Right. And, uh, yeah. you know, they're, they're taking that approach. So it's really interesting to see, you know, what I grew up with, I'm in my mid thirties and the traditional way of NCA sports and where we played and where you played is, is the landscape is changing. So uh, what I believe is the best is ahead. <clears throat> you know, I think for all of us are passionate about college sports. Hopefully this is a good step, which I think it is. Yeah. Community rapid fire. Things. Yeah. Let's get the rapid fire. We'll end with uh, some fun here. So why don't you kick it off, Calvin? So my first question is <clears throat> the illustrator. And you've got Kenny, the jet Smith on TNT who wins on the board. You or Kenny. Uh, me. Oh yeah. You, there's, there's no, <laughs> There's no jet who, you know, just kind of jogs over to a big board and points that can beat the beat the telestration uh, prowess of the illustrator. That's a that's a simple simple answer. I would expect nothing less. When, when is I guess this is not on the hot, but thinking of something like that, you do the what ninety six feet? Is that right? Is it ninety six or 94, 94. Feet? 94, 94 feet? feet yeah. Love that, love that. Is that coming back? Are you doing it this year? Or is that yeah, but the, the, yeah, we have to do um, we have to get creative with it. We haven't been on site uh, enough, and last place I was was the, the bubble. So um, you know, we're probably going to have to wind up you know doing it two different locations on Zoom. You know, being on a treadmill or something like that because you know we can't can't be uh, you know we can't even have cameramen down on the floor now. We have uh, automatic cameras on the floor. 
instead of handheld. So it's a little bit of a different environment, but we're, we're figuring it out as we go. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <clears throat> love that piece. Um, quick, quick, uh, I know it's early on in the year. Who, who's, uh, who do you think might win it all or who's your final four? The two best teams I've seen so far, Gonzaga and Baylor, they are legit. Uh, I, I think the, the teams in the big 10 have the can lay claim to sort of final four spots uh, first dibs on those. Um, but, uh, I, outside of the big 10, I would say that, uh, that Villanova was really impressive. You know, I mentioned the big 10, uh, Iowa, uh, Michigan state. I saw Illinois the other night, they, they lost to Baylor. Uh, and then, um, you know, I still think that down the road, uh, Virginia is going to be really good. Uh, they lost to San Francisco in a game that, that I wouldn't have, I could never have predicted. But um, but I think by the end of the year they're, they're going to be right right in that mix for the final four as well. Sure. So, you know, Coach K, you're uh, you're you're one of the you know the first classes that that really helped put Coach K on the map. Have you ever had the thought that if your class doesn't come through the doors, that you know we're not sitting here talking about Coach K? you know, 40 years later, or do you think he is a man who would have found a way to still reach the level of success that he's reached? I think it would have found a way, but it wouldn't have been a Duke. Um, yeah. If we, if we didn't win, uh, they, they, they tried to not, not the administration, but the fan base tried to get him out while I was there. Uh, my first, first year, uh, that was a rough ride. Um, and, and there was a lot of, lot of uh, discussion around the program. Is he going to make it? And, you know, all of us, we talked about it as players. And uh, I remember, you know, talking with my roommate and some of my classmates that, that if they fire him, I'm out of here, man, I'm not staying here. And I can tell you that when I was a freshman, I, there, there were a lot of Duke alums that, and fans in the stands, not the, not the students, but the, the alums that I didn't care for. And uh, obviously things got better when we started winning uh, and, and winning big. But, um, you know, then, then the bandwagon was too full to, to fit anybody else on. That was great. But, and look, it, when people want to jump on the bandwagon, let them on. It wasn't like there were any hard feelings. But, um, but it, that first year, I mean, I, I, I didn't care for them at all. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I thought when Trace, uh, you know, uh, one of the producers back here mentioned that question, I was like, that Coach K was going to have success no matter what. That's a great question, though, because – you know, the inside, you know, you were experiencing that. I, was, I, I knew there were some adverse points there in his tenure, but, uh, you know, I know your class is obviously the one that got Duke basketball as a foundation. So. Winning cures everything. <laughs> well, we, we love, you know, and that's the thing, like last night when you're, you, you're, you're passionate. And 100%. like you said, you're, you know, for me, you know, I was fortunate enough to start a company in the back corner of a mall plaza growing it. So I get what it's like to uh, have to take it, understand your, what, what's been given to you and be passionate about your purpose. So, I mean, I, I definitely respect that, you know, and I, I appreciate your time here with us and your story, once again, of overcoming any adversity that you've had and, you know, the book and, and the content you put out, the stuff. I mean, coming on a podcast like us, especially after the evening you had last night in the middle of your ramping up in the season is, is very much appreciated, Jay. And, 
um, you know, wish you nothing. I didn't, I didn't run up Omaha Beach last night. I just did a, I just did a couple of basketball games. Guys <laughs> <laughs> are making it sound like I climbed Everest and then I took a phone call. <laughs> are, are you going to golf at least? I know I would listen to one of your golf podcasts, so I, I know the concentration's key for your golf game. How's your golf game right now? It's actually been pretty good. Uh, my back feels better. I've worked really hard to get my back in shape, but uh, it was too cold to play golf right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm off the, I'm off the, the course for a little while. Yeah. No, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, we, uh, we really appreciate it. Anyway, uh, I know obviously Jay Billis, you, you put it in there a lot of times. We'd like to tell our listeners anything else that you can drive them to. Obviously your book, Toughness, Jay Billis on Twitter. I know you're on Instagram. Anywhere else that we, uh, they can follow you? Not that I can think of. I mean, I'll be going out for a cup of coffee tomorrow morning if they want to meet me there. I go to a convenience store nearby, but I'm all masked up, so they might not recognize me. Yeah, well, fantastic. Do you have to go out and, you have to go out and disguise a little bit? No, no, no. Nobody yeah, cares who I am. All I, want is, all I want is a... I, I take my dog out every morning to a local convenience store, and I buy a cup of coffee, and I buy the dog a Slim Jim, and everybody's happy. Like it, like hey, it. Well, as Kyle said, man, yeah, I appreciate you, uh, you know, taking some time, you know, out of your schedule and with, with things ramping up and, you know, joining us two knuckleheads and, uh, you know, telling, sharing sharing the journey of, of, of who Jay Billis is. And um, we're obviously going to continue to support and follow you and keep those uh, keep those Jeezy quotes coming for me because it's easy to retweet. <laughs> real recognize real. Thanks for having me, guys. Real, real uh, recognize brother. real. Yep. Thanks, All right, Jay. We'll see, see you. Ya. Thanks for listening to The Underdog Podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google Podcast apps and send our Twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at Underdog Pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the UDP.